Good morning. My name is Mary Norton, and I'll be reading our scripture this morning. The passage comes from 1 Samuel 28. It can be found on page 259 in the Black Chair Bible in front of you or on the screens behind me. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 28. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, You know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, and Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim, or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and consult with her. His servants replied, There is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. 
The woman came over to Saul and saw that she that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now, please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good morning. So good to be back. I was in the Middle East with Pastor Drew, as many of you know, and uh, Dave French as well. And we had a wonderful time there. Uh, in fact, um, tonight, uh, Drew's going to be sharing a little bit more about our adventures in the Middle East. We were in the United Arab Emirates uh, in three cities, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Ras Al Khaimah. Um, we were also in Kuwait, uh, Kuwait City, and uh, just a marvelous time. We have a lot to report back, a little teaser trailer tonight, and then the, the full meal deal uh, later in April. We'll probably set aside a Sunday evening uh, to, to share more with you. So looking forward to sharing with you. If I don't know you, if I've not met you before, my name is Godwin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's a privilege to look at 1 Samuel. We've got two sermons left, 1 Samuel 28, that's today, and then we're going to wrap up next week. In fact, if you don't mind doing me a favor, and that is reading 1 Samuel 29 through 31 sometime this week, maybe Saturday night, ahead of our time together Sunday morning, we're not going to read that whole chunk. We're going to focus our attention on the last chapter. So if you don't mind doing that, that would be wonderful. Now, one of the things we noticed as we were traveling through the Middle East and interacting, uh, especially with expats... Uh, that are Christians in these different cities here in the Middle East, one of the things we noticed that was pervasive was a softness and an eagerness towards God's Word. Uh, It was easy to have spiritual conversations. We noticed this humility around God's Word and, and, and an eagerness to talk about how does this message that I just heard or this Bible study discussion that we just had, how does this relate to our lives and, and what was the result of this kind of freshness in responding to God's Word? Well, we noticed that these friends, these Christians, had a great friendship with the Lord. They communed with God easily. That was very evident. They prayed to God consistently. There's a softness there. There was an eagerness there. And so when a sermon was preached, like I mentioned before, there was a certain Bible study discussion that occurred. They were humble to listen to God's word. Obviously, they're not perfect in that humility, but that fellowship with God, which is so foundational, was there. This is something not to be taken granted, taken for granted. Excuse me. I think at the very heart of being a Christian is a softness towards God, an eagerness to listening to God. And this is how we can enjoy a friendship with him, listening to him, submitting to him. The opposite is actually shockingly true as well. If you're not a Christian, if you're not listening or submitting to God, then it's not just that you're missing out on a friendship with God, you are actually God's enemy. And that might sound really harsh and strange and, wait a second, I thought God is all about love, but according to Colossians 1 verse 21, the Apostle Paul, he's talking to Christians, but he says this, 
Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies. Paul uses that stark language. Can you imagine this, friends? Having God as your enemy. I'm sure it's undeniably painful to have a human enemy, but to have God as your enemy, having God against you, having God withhold good things from you, living life without God. So we got to ask the question, how do you end up as God's enemy? That's what we're going to discuss this morning. I want you to notice Saul in this passage is God's enemy. Look with me at verse 15 and 16. Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul says, I'm in serious trouble. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. There it is. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Notice this. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? Now, friends, this shouldn't surprise us. It's been a long time coming, in fact. I mean, this man has lived a downward spiral. And and so why is God Saul's enemy? Well, look with me at the beginning of verse 18, in the middle of Samuel's great speech to Saul. Samuel says, you did not obey the Lord. There it is. Now, the, the, the most literal rendering of that phrase is, you did not obey the voice of the Lord. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. You have not been listening to God. And so these are the themes that we're going to be tackling this morning. Here's the main point in a very simple sentence. Here it is. Listen to God, lest he become your enemy. Listen to God, lest he become your enemy. Let me invite you to pray one more time with me. Oh, Father, we confess to you, as the Scriptures confess, that the grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this morning, as we come before you, ultimately, we want to sit under your word. We want to humbly listen to you as you speak to us in this passage. Would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to offer up three kind of story movements in this passage. The first one is verses 1 through 14, and what we see here is Saul looking for guidance, Saul looking for guidance. Now, our story goes kind of back and forth between David and Saul. So as we take kind of a gigantic step back, look at the context in the last few chapters, as we look at the chapters that are coming up, we see David and Saul back and forth. And I think the narrator wants to draw a comparison between the two. David, though he's imperfect, is held out to be a model of faith and repentance. Saul is David's foil. His story arc has been a downward spiral, as we've noticed, of fear and sin and unbelief. And that's kind of continues in our story this morning. For David, on the other hand, he's been in the wilderness. God has been training him to be his king. He's been weaning him off some sinful tendencies. But for Saul, what we see here is that he is about to be judged by God. Now, these opening four to five verses offer up kind of the setting of our story. In verse three, we are reminded that Samuel's dead, but he was a much-loved prophet. He was faithful uh, to Israel. He was an important figure. He anointed and he tried to guide Saul. Then later he anointed God's king, who of course is David. And apparently Saul had removed the mediums, the witches, 
from the land. This is according to Old Testament scripture. So it's a good thing. And you'll remember from last week that David has joined the Philistines. And they, the Philistines, with David, are now gathering for war against Israel. But before we see what happens, the scene turns to Saul. So the Philistines have put themselves smack dab in the middle of Israelite territory, uh, cutting off the northern tribes from the southern tribes. They were trying to divide the lands, cutting off communication and travel and supplies that would have moved between the north and the south. This is, of course, a brilliant move. So brilliant, in fact, that Saul, notice verse 5, has an ulcer. (laughs) He is so terrified. He's so afraid. And at first, it seems like Saul does the right thing. Notice verse 6 with me. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Now, these three means for guidance were common back then. Kings often received dreams from God to provide guidance. Urim is a stone in the priest's ephod, which is their staff, and it was kind of a priestly means of revelation. Prophets were, of course, direct messengers from God, so Saul seems to be using the right means, right? The royal, priestly, the prophetic means for consulting God. Okay, he's good to go, right? Well, apparently not, because God is silent. Notice how he is just utterly silent here. And as we dig deeper, of course, these kind of priestly and and prophetic and kingly means didn't work. I mean, Saul had abdicated his role as king, so the spirit left him. His dreams would be of no help. He once had prophets like Samuel, but he refused to obey their words. And we will remember from 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, the prophets are now with David, right? What about priestly help? Well, you'll remember what Saul did to the priests. He killed the priests, right? He killed all the priests, except for one. And that one priest is with David. So God was speaking to David. God was silent with Saul. Now, we don't get the sense that Saul is humble, that he's repentant, and this is made even more clear in verse 7. Look at what he does next. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, that's a witch, so I can go and consult her. And friends, this is not what a repentant, soft-hearted man does before God, right? Saul has exhausted all the legitimate means for consulting God. Now he's seeking some illegitimate means. He's followed the law in removing these witches, but now he seeks out one who's escaped to this place called Endor. Notice what he does next in verses 8 and following. He, He takes off his royal robes. He disguises himself. This is much like King Lear, if you're familiar with that story. Saul has progressively left his kingly attire behind and with it his kingly authority. He may have looked the part of Israel's king, but he's not playing the part. He's off to Endor. By the way, that isn't the forest moon on the outer rim full of Ewoks and stormtroopers, just to be clear. As much as I want that to be true, it's a place actually located on the other side of the Philistine army. So Saul has to slip through enemy lines to get to this witch. Friends, this is how desperate Saul is. This is how far his ungodly fear has led him. Now notice verse 9, the woman is suspicious. (laughs) She knows all about government front operations. You know, she fears she's being set up as part of another pagan bust. And then look how the story progresses, starting in verse 10. Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. 
When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, friends, did you catch Saul swearing in the Lord's name, this witch would come to no harm? Isn't that nuts? This is how far Saul has fallen. He's now swearing by the Lord that he would not obey the Lord. That's what he's doing here. Saul's hardness is so severe that he just doesn't care. He wants reassurance. He wants guidance. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. At any cost, he's willing to pay to get that reassurance and guidance. Of course, there's a lesson for for us here, isn't there, friends? People ignore God and then complain that God is ignoring them. If you want to be left alone by God, friends, beware. Don't be surprised when God gives you what you want. He may leave you to your own devices. Like Saul, we too are tempted to squeeze God into the margins of our lives. We attempt to use God instead of worship God. Think with me further about the heart of Saul's sin here. He wants a domesticated God, doesn't he? A God like the genie in Aladdin's bottle. One pledged to do wonderful things for him as long as he holds that lamp. Now, he probably feels that David now holds the lamp and he wishes he could have the power back. But Saul has totally missed the point here, hasn't he? I mean, talk about adventures in missing the point. Christians, we would say today in the 21st centuries and down through the ages, we would confess this. Our God, the real God, is not a genie in a bottle to be manipulated and conjoled and bent to serve our whims and wishes. Our God is to be worshipped and obeyed and revered and feared and loved. And here's the key word, unconditionally. We are his, not the other way around. You know, over the years, I've talked to folks who are upset with God or angry with God. I talk to people and they say to me, you know, I prayed and I've asked God for a husband or a job or a change in my circumstances. Many of them have rejected God's given means for communing with the Lord. They've stopped coming to church or humbly listening to sermons or eagerly reading their own Bibles or fellowshipping deeply with the Word, with other Christians. They've stopped participating in the ordinances which are designed to display the Word and display the gospel and strengthen our faith. But then they scream at God because He is withholding some earthly good from them. My friends, we've all been there, haven't we? We make a lesser earthly thing primary, and we forget that God is our primary good. We want God for his benefits. We love the gifts. We've forgotten about the giver. You know, Saul's greatest sin here is that he was more concerned about a battle than about his relationship with God. So let me ask you the question that kind of pops into my mind. Maybe it pops into your mind. Are you too concerned with lesser earthly things compared to your concern over your relationship with the living God. Think about that. Let's move on to the next movement here, story movement. We see Saul hearing God's judgment. Saul is hearing God's judgment as Samuel comes into, uh, into existence here before our eyes. Now, before we jump into things, we should talk about a few elephants in the room, okay? So let's talk about witches, Let's talk about mediums. Are they fakes? 
Or do they, do they actually connect with another world? Now, what does the Bible say about this? Well, I think some mediums and spiritualists are 100% charlatans. You know, it's not difficult to manipulate needy people, right? All to get some sweet moolah. <laughs> so it's possible, I think, that this medium is fake, but that's not because this material world is all there is. The Bible says quite clearly, this is from Colossians chapter 1, that all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, were created by Jesus. And so we must affirm it's, it's possible, it's quite possible that mediums and spiritualists and Ouija boards and seances are, are real in terms of their ability perhaps to connect to a different world. But the Bible also teaches us that dead people don't speak right now. Ghosts don't haunt this earth. And so you can have a real encounter with the other world, but it's not with departed loved ones. What you're encountering is an evil spirit, a demon. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, you can jot that down, look it up later. It instructs Christians not to participate in pagan worship. Why? Because behind these things are demons, says Paul. So this is why the Bible forbids mediums. Now, you may be wondering, Pastor, this isn't really a problem in the 21st century. Like, this is for like the olden times, you know. Well, actually, it is a problem for today. Many people today, even Christians, visit mediums and attend spiritualist churches. They're so looking for that word of reassurance or that word of guidance that they're going to do whatever it takes to get it. In Italy, which of course, as you know, is the heartland of Roman Catholicism, there are more mediums than Catholic priests. In the late 19th century and into the 20th, 20th century, Cincinnati, that's our city, was a hotbed for spiritualism and parlor seances. Today, there are several spiritualist churches and groups in our city, not to mention the playful use of Ouija boards or tarot card readers, astrology. I'm guessing some here at Faith Church have maybe dabbled with these things, or you know someone who has. I can think of being a young Christian in my late teens, early 20s. When I go through a tough day, I'd be home with my parents and they'd open up a Lansing State Journal. I'm just kind of, I'm curious. I want, a, I want a word of reassurance. I want it. What does it say? And then I'd go and read, right? Well, friends, opening yourself up to these sorts of things is opening yourself up to the demonic realm, making agreements, making alliances with demons. I want you to think about it that way. But friends, why did Saul do this? Why are we tempted to do these kinds of things? Let's read just the first few words in verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul, here it is, I'm in serious trouble. That's it, right? That's why we do things that we shouldn't do. Often, we're desperate, we're lost. I mean, Saul's cut himself off from God. God has issued the, the judgment of silence. What's he going to do? Now, we must understand this as one of the final twists in the downward spiral of Saul's life. Saul's tragic trajectory rivals that of many literary and Hollywood characters, whether it's, you know, Tolkien's Gollum or Dostoevsky. Uh, his character in Crime and Punishment, I think it's Raskolnikov, or even some of the Disney villains, right? You know, Prince Hans. You just see this downward spiral. Sometimes it's surprising at how bad it gets. And that's Saul's story too. For years now, Saul has disobeyed God's commandments. He's rejected Samuel's prophetic direction. He's persecuted God's anointed king, David. Fear and jealousy and rage have grown in his heart. What are we to make of this? Well, friends, sin 
is not a static thing. It doesn't pause. It's not content with keeping you plateaued. It seeks to grow and intensify and multiply. You know, the difference between Saul and David isn't that one is more or less sinful. It's that David, as we'll soon see, repents and Saul doesn't. That's the difference. David's on a healthy trajectory, even though he's imperfect, as we've seen last week, right? But Saul, what's he doing? He's chilling with a witch, you know, and things are not getting better. So this witch, notice, conjures up Samuel, and we wonder, is this really Samuel? Well, I believe in this special case it is, by the power and the permission of God, this really is Samuel. But Saul doesn't receive a word of reassurance from Samuel, does he? He gets a word of judgment. Let's read these verses together, 16 through 19. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the Lord, or more literally, you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. I did not practice that word. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. So we see what's happening here. Uh, Samuel essentially says, listen, you shouldn't be surprised by this. I've told you this. You have rejected God. You disobeyed God. You did not you know, take, uh, take out all of the, uh, the people that God wanted you to take out. This is way back in, I think it's 1 Samuel 13. And therefore, what is the Lord going to do? Now, well, not only is he, is he going to pull this kingdom from, from Saul and give it to David, but notice the final kind of indictment here. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Wow. Saul and his sons have just about 24 hours. Friends, surely the most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. Why is Saul God's enemy? Again, verse 18, you did not obey the voice of the Lord. If you persistently refuse to listen to God's words, you will endure his silence. This is the end game for not listening to God or, or having a hardened heart towards God. He will become your enemy. Oh, that's sobering, isn't it? And two applications come from this. First of all, if you are not a Christian here, let me address you for just a few moments let me gently warn you based on what we see in this passage, not because I'm above you or I'm better than you. I genuinely care. I want you to be a friend with God through Christ because if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you will have God as your enemy. But the, the reverse is also true. If you have Jesus as your Savior, you will have God as your friend. That is the good news of the gospel. But you know, in this Bible Belt region, it is especially easy to receive false assurances that you are a Christian. You know, if you've said a prayer or walked down an aisle or you felt badly about your sin that one time, if you're generally a moral person and you send your kids to VBS and church on Easter and Christmas, right? Then, of course, God is your friend and he's not your enemy. Not so fast. Perhaps the greatest danger in our present day is a neutered Christianity. A Christianity without Christ a forgiveness without repentance, a salvation without regeneration, and a heaven without a hell. Friends, this is the false 
gospel of easy believism. The true Christian gospel is full of saving grace, is it not? But it's not empty of real moral demands. For example, when Jesus called his disciples, what were his first words? Follow me, follow me. Our obedience isn't the basis of our salvation, but it certainly is evidence for it. So let me ask you this question. Really, any, anybody in this room, okay, even if you identify yourself as a Christian, are you truly, actually, continually listening to God? Are you truly, actually, continually obeying the voice of the Lord? Or has his voice kind of faded out from your life? Has your humility towards God, uh, has your desire for his ways, has that kind of gotten fuzzy in your mind and heart? If your answer is yes to these last couple questions, then you are in danger perhaps of being an enemy of God. And my encouragement and exhortation to you this morning is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. Second application is for Christians. You know, context is so important in our stories. We're reading especially these big chunks of 1 Samuel. I mean, why does the story of David, this is from 1 Samuel 27 with the Philistines, suddenly stop at verse 2 in chapter 28? Why not kind of keep going, you know, with David and the Philistines and Achish and all of that stuff? Why does, why does that, that story not keep going? Why this kind of sudden interruption? Well, it's like we're watching the OSU UFM game, football game on television, and with five minutes left in the second quarter, we hear this voice on the broadcast. We interrupt our regular programming to bring you this special news bulletin. At approximately 3.30 p.m., the Canadian Air Force launched a bombing attack from bases in Ontario to Lansing, Michigan. Now, why interrupt a perfectly enjoyable game in the middle of November? Well, I mean, it's kind of obvious. At the moment, there is something far more urgent for us to know. Friends, there is something worse than David being among God's enemies, namely being one of God's enemies. Now, doesn't this just kind of put David's trial into perspective? First Samuel 27, David is with God's enemies. He isn't handling himself well. He needs to repent and trust God again, which he will. But Saul's situation is far, far worse. He is God's enemy. Our burdens appear lighter when seen in their proper context, don't they? Now, I don't say this flippantly. You know, we, we Christians face some pretty big trials, painful trials. I don't want this to sound like, hey, there's, there's always someone who has it worse than you do. But let's put our trials in context, shall we? You may be worn out from work. You may have lost your health. Your marriage may be strained. Parenting may be especially a challenge. Finances may be tight. Stuff keeps just piling on and you're wondering, how do I keep up? Friends, this passage tells us there is something far worse. So if you're a Christian, I want you to recognize Recognize something. Recognize that in the face of all, all of your losses and crosses and disappointments and pressures and failures, that if you are truly a Christian, you have access to the throne room of God and you experience the smile of God. 
Do you realize that all that you have suffered is not nearly so tragic as someone who has God as their enemy? That is far, far worse. My friends, I'm not telling you to stop weeping or lamenting. I'm asking you to have a little perspective. I'm asking you to remember that if you are in Christ, you are no longer God's enemies. Praise God, right? Now let's go to the last and final movement here. We see that Saul is listening to a witch. If we thought it couldn't get any worse, look what he does with this witch after the great condemnation that comes from God. And in some ways, Saul's response maybe is understandable. He's absolutely terrified. He's likely been fasting in preparation for consulting with the dead, which is kind of like what people did back then. But what I want you to notice in this final segment is what Saul does, and then next, what Saul does not do. So what does Saul do first? Well, he's stopped communing with God for a long time. Notice now he's communing with a witch. And he's essentially eating comfort food prepared by the switch, right? He's, he's finding relief over a plate of meatloaf. I know we're kind of chuckling, but we're not so unlike Saul, are we? Sure, we may not have visited a witch, and she may have not prepared us chickens and waffles or something. But we aren't immune from ignoring God or replacing God. God speaks to us through this book. What a wonderful gift it is. We need to prize it. It is so precious to us. But the problem is we don't always want to hear its testimonies and hear its instructions, do we? We don't want to submit to God. We want the comfort without the demands. We want an extra message, something different. I mean, the Bible isn't really enough. It doesn't address all of my issues, so I'm going to go over here. Now, where are we tempted to go? What, what sorts of voices are we tempted to listen to? Let me give you two specific voices. The first voice is the voice of the psychologized self or the therapeutic self. I share this uh, in, in a church I preached at in, in Dubai. This would have been last Sunday, actually, so a week ago. It feels like three weeks ago, but I shared this, and I, hopefully it's helpful to you as well. So I want you to consider this. The Bible invites us to view this world through certain categories. Sin and righteousness is certainly one of them. Another category is wisdom and folly, and that comes right out of the book of Proverbs. And so we ought to make judgments and decisions based on these categories. We need to read this world, read ourselves, read our spouses, read our families, read our job places, and, and really all of life through these particular biblical categories. But our broader culture has disregarded these categories, haven't they? At the very very least, they've diminished these categories. And so today's prevailing model for interpreting the data is the therapeutic one, hurt and care. Not sin and righteousness, not wisdom and folly. Now, it's not that we don't want to acknowledge hurt and offer care. Of course, those things are true. It's that the world has disregarded the Bible and is virtually only embracing this therapeutic framework. And so the woman trapped in a man's body, the husband who wants out of his marriage because her issues are harming his self. The world has very little concern with how sin and righteousness or wisdom and folly relate to these situations, but they're very interested in the feelings of oppression and relief, bringing relief to these folks. Friends, this voice whispers to us that our problem is not in here, it's out there. And this is a dangerous voice. 
Here's the second voice that I think many of us are tempted by, the voice of science and technology. I want to be clear off, uh, off the bat here. Christians ought not be anti-science or anti-medicine or anti-technology. Uh, I'm using an iPad right now. My dad was a psychiatrist. He was a Christian. He prescribed medicine. I think there's a role for all of that. But today, people also use science and technology to replace God. They use science and technology to explain God out of the picture or replace God as sovereign or savior. You may not be tempted to consult a witch, but maybe you try to predict the future and control your world through medicine and technology in a way that replaces trust in God. Let me get super practical, okay? Do you have a deeper relationship with your phone or with God? You know, every Sunday morning, you get that like little update, which tells you like how long you've been interacting with your phone. It's always so convicting. Today, it was 10% less than last week. Praise God, just a few minutes ago. But this is a real question, right? Who do you spend more time with? What do you read more? Something off your phone or this book? Here's another question. Have you put all your hope in a pill that has been prescribed? Have you put all your hope in a pill that has been prescribed? Or is your greatest practical hope in Christ, which acknowledges a pill can help, but it can't change your heart? I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. Friends, listening to God, on the other hand, not listening to these sorts of voices, not letting these voices override our listening of God, it's not always easy for us to really follow and obey God in today's culture. Friends, will you listen to God when the heat is turned up? Will you humbly accept his direction when it invites more pain into your life, more discomfort into your life? What if listening to God means limiting your influence or, or kind of uh, uh, stifling your place in this world? What if you become offensive? What if you become boring to others? Will you still listen to God? Will you listen to God's voice when he frames your issue not only as a medical diagnosis, but also in terms of sin and repentance and faith and wisdom? Will you listen then? Will you be more like Saul? Will you go your own way and seek out these worldly voices? So Saul is listening to a witch what should he have done? Sure, the situation may be hopeless, right? I mean, he's just been condemned by God, but he should still have left this woman's company and begged the Lord for mercy, right? I mean, what else could he have done? We see none of that here. His fear, his weakness, his depression, it isn't real repentance, is it? This is a worldly sorrow compared to a godly sorrow. Pastor Ryan brought this up last week as we were looking at David's example. We see that even more clearly here. If you want to read more about that, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So what is a godly sorrow? The Heidelberg Catechism defines godly sorrow as, quote, to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Now it's clear Saul is certainly in the depths of depression, but it's a sort of worldly sorrow. There's a big difference between repentance and regret. Regret feels bad about past sins. 
Repentance turns away from those sins. Most of us are content with regret. You know, we feel bad, maybe a little ashamed, a little embarrassed because of what we've done. We, we don't like the consequences of our sin. Maybe we have a good cry and it feels cathartic. But we don't really want to change. We don't really want to live differently. That is worldly sorrow. Friends, do you want to feel bad or do you want to change? That's at the very bottom of this story before us. Do you want to feel bad or do you want to change? David, as we'll see in the coming chapters, wants to change, and Saul does not. Saul has a hardened heart towards God. David has a soft heart. He's listening to his God, even though he's not perfect, just like us, right? So how do we keep our hearts more like David and less like Saul? I want to close with some applications, just three quick applications, hopefully quick, we'll see. Quick applications. How do we keep our hearts soft before God? How do, we, how do we become a good listener of God? Here's the first one. Repent early and often. Repent early and often. And this is the thing Saul didn't do. He had chances, right? A lot of them, in fact. He was getting called out for years by the prophets, but he kept growing hardened. He kept responding to his fears, not with repentance and trusting God, but with sinful action. Repent early means when the sin is just, you know, just a little guy, you know, just a little annoyance. It's not like full-blown angry outburst yet. It's just a little irritation. It's so easy just to kind of, ah, that's not a big deal. I'm just going to keep going. Brothers and sisters, learn to repent early. Don't let it grow into something uncontrollable. If you're wondering, why am I not growing spiritually? Why, am I, why do I feel kind of God is distant from me? Maybe it's because you're not repenting early and often. Number two, repent at the roots. Repent at the roots. You know, too often uh, Christians confess the bad fruits, but we don't confess the bad roots. So I'm just going to throw this example out to you. Uh, you know, I may know something, a little something about this. This might be straight from my own uh, journal or not. You'll have to guess. I shouldn't have snapped at my eight-year-old son. Hey, buddy, I'm sorry for snapping. I know it's the, like the 10th time this week, but I'm sorry. Now, we would say, like, that's not a bad start. Like, in fact, that's a great start, right? But why am I being snappy? What do I want that I don't have? Am I living out of my allegiance with Christ or am I living out of my allegiance with my own flesh? Oh, it's feeling all heavy, Godwin. We don't want to go there. Let's just talk about irritation, right? Well, I'm snappy because me time has been interrupted. Okay, let's go one layer deeper. I think I deserve me time more than my son deserves attention from me. Oh, man. Whew. I mean, imagine having this thought on a Saturday afternoon, right? This is what the Lord wants. I've got bad roots to confess, not just bad fruits to confess. Let me encourage you in this manner. Confess the bad roots, not just the bad fruits. Then ask yourself, what ought to be at the root? What ought to be in my heart at the desire level? Where ought my allegiance lie in this situation? This is going to help you have a soft heart before the Lord and before other people. Number three, number three, finally, learn to commune with God 
in every possible manner. Learn to commune with God in every possible manner. Now, some of you are probably not reading your Bible enough, so let me just encourage you as one of your pastors, get in there, read your Bible. That is huge. That might be your first step that you need to do. If you don't know where to start or what to do, uh, come up, talk to myself or the other pastors or elders. We'd love to maybe give you a Bible reading plan that you can engage with. You know, I think for all of us in this room, there's a temptation just to kind of look at this book and keep it at a distance, whether that's in our Bible reading time or when we're here on Sunday mornings, maybe we're at a community group and we're discussing the sermon and, oh, we're getting into it. We're getting into it. But are we really getting into it at the level of our hearts? Are we really getting into it at that level? Am I communing with God through this sermon or this Bible study or my personal Bible reading time? Or am I just kind of reading the book like I'm reading a textbook or I'm reading a quote from Maya Angelou. This is the voice of God to his people. So let me encourage you to learn to commune with God, pray through the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures, study the scriptures with other brothers and sisters, have ongoing conversations with God through the scriptures during your day. Bring it into your spousal interactions and your interactions with your children and so forth. If you want more help here, look to the Puritans. They were masters at this. Okay, ultimately, a soft heart is a gift from God, is it not? Praise God that he saves Christians from all of our closed-eared hard-heartedness, right? For when you have been stubborn, Christian, when you have turned away, when you have grown callous, when you've had blinders on, he has said, I will not put the judgment of silence on you. I will not turn my face from you. I will not cast you aside because you, Christian, are in Christ. You are no longer my enemy. Listen, friends, Saul didn't have this word of assurance, but we can have it. The battle between us and God is over. We were enemies. Now we're reconciled to God through Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder this passage and message silently.